Thanks so much for joining us. The Bible reading for this message is taken from Revelation chapter 4. It would be great if you could push pause on this video now. Go and have a read through Revelation chapter 4 and then come back. So Revelation chapter 4, we'll see you back here in just a moment. Revelation. This talk doesn't need any more introduction than that. It either strikes fear in you because you've wrestled with it and have never been able to get to the bottom of it, or it intrigues you because you're fascinated by all the stuff that lies there and what mysteries could you discover or uncover uh, about the future, uh, what truths might lie there. Uh, it's been the home to conspiracy theorists. It has uh, troubled uh, Christians uh, throughout the centuries. But I want to begin this talk by letting you know uh, that the book of Revelation is all about Jesus Christ and his church. It's as simple as that. You see, the church needs to be reminded of its heavenly connection and its heavenly reality. It needs help to see beyond the appearance of things, that there is a reality that lies beyond our senses. Most of our experiences of this world come from those senses. Our impression of the things that take place is based on what we can see and hear and taste and touch and smell. Revelation tells us that there are realities that lie beyond our senses. And these realities are of infinite importance. John is being shown the destiny of the church. And in being shown the destiny of the church is being instructed to write this down, to pass it on to the church. Heaven, you see, is a present reality where God lives and reigns. It's from there that he interacts with here. In Psalm 57, we learned that it's from heaven that he saves us. And it's a realm that we know nothing of by our own nature because it's not accessible to our senses. So let me ask you, do you ever think about heaven? And I don't mean going there. I mean, although that would be a good thing to think about going there. I mean, do you ever think about what is actually happening in heaven now? And what I mean is, do you ever think about what is actually happening in heaven right now? Does it ever cross your mind uh, that it is a reality, heaven, and that there is something that is taking place there in this moment that's just gone past? So, I think uh, that if we begin to grasp what it is that's taking place in heaven in the present, uh, it will have an impact on your outlook of life, and that you will be greatly affected with the knowledge of what's taking place in heaven. The church needs to be reminded of its heavenly connection and of its heavenly reality. And I think that the effect that this would have on us uh, is simple but profound. That the things that now seem to be so important to us will suddenly fade into insignificance. And a few things that seem to be rather unimportant uh, things that don't really impress us or the world, uh, once you have a glimpse of what is going on in heaven, you just might realize that those unimportant, unimpressive things actually explode into importance in your life. 
So that is what revelation is meant to do for us. It is the revealing, the showing of what must take place. Back in chapter 1, that word is used, and again here in chapter 4, it's used. Uh, in verse 1, John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Uh, that word must is emphatic. It's, it's saying this is what must, what is inevitably going to happen. And so we, you, are meant to draw strength and courage as you live in the present with the knowledge of what comes after this. Chapter 4 begins a new scene. In chapters 1 to 3, chapter 1 is the beginning, the opening of the vision. Chapter 2 and 3 are the letters that Jesus gives to the seven churches. And so what you have in chapter 4 is really a movement from earth to heaven, uh, from the reality of the church on this world to the reality of the church in heaven. Uh, John has this vision. Uh, he's not, it's not completely unique to John. Isaiah has one of these. Ezekiel, Isaiah 6. Ezekiel has one in Ezekiel 1. Daniel has one in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, but this is John's one. Uh, what happens is a door is opened. I don't think that so there's any irony that John, who writes the Gospel of John, and John, who writes Revelation, uh, John records Jesus, his words, uh, where Jesus says, I am the door. Uh, so this door is opened. And John is given a glimpse into heaven through this door. He's told to come up here by the voice that he heard at first speaking to him. That's back in chapter 1. So this is the voice of Jesus. Come up here and I will show you what must take place. At once I was in the Spirit, uh, John says, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone seated on it. At the heart of heaven is the throne of God. And on that throne, God is seated. Uh, notice that John was called by the voice. He was at once in the Spirit, and then he saw the throne with the one sitting on it. You'll see that Father, Son, and Spirit are all involved in what is taking place here. Uh, that part of the revelation is that this is the God who is being worshipped. The Trinity, the triune God of Father, Son, and Spirit. What we need to understand when John says that he was in the Spirit is that we are not equipped for the things of heaven. Uh, but these things have been made known. That there is a truth about heaven and God that is available to human beings. But the initiative for making that known, for revealing, has come from the side of heaven and not from us. That the truth about God is not going to be found in human thinking or human exploration. That God is the one who must make these things known. So when John says that he was in the Spirit, it seems that he's trying to communicate that he was in a condition or a situation in which he was able to see that which normally lies beyond our natural senses. Now we all know that first impressions are of last are, are, tend to be lasting impressions. It's very difficult to undo a first impression. 
And, and, and so it's almost as though what's happening here is that Jesus has been showing John the church, and it's a little bit of a mishmash. There's some good stuff. There's some bad stuff. And now he says, come with me and let us worship God. And he's taken by Jesus in the Spirit into the presence of the Father uh, to uh, worship God, to be caught up into the life of of God, the existence, the reality of God, in the presence of God. And what we what we meet in this first impression, the first thing, the main thing that John sees, I mean, I don't know what, you get a glimpse into heaven, what are you kind of going to see? Well, the first thing, and the thing of ultimate importance that John sees is the throne. The throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. God is here presented as a ruler a single sovereign ruler, which is more good news for the church, that the dominating image of heaven is that of a throne, and that God is at the center of it all, ruling. That is the great heavenly reality, uh, the truth, the fact that God reigns. If you get that part in chapter 4, you are well on your way to understanding the whole book. You see, John's readers had lived under the shadow of another throne. Uh, they'd not had an easy time of it. They had suffered. Some of them had been killed. We, too, live under the shadow of certain powers, be they political or philosophical. You could call them thrones, if you like. But the thrones of the world look like kitty Sunday school chairs that we pack out from the trailer next to the throne of God. Uh, the so-called powers of this world don't deserve the name powers. Once you've seen the throne of God that stands in heaven, for he is the one who rules, and that is where true sovereignty lies. So John sees the one who sits on the throne, and rather than try to uh, describe the form of it, uh, John tries to relate to us what he sees with things that we can grasp and understand, uh, not to try to explain things that we cannot. Uh, and so you'll see there in verse 3, the one who sat there, he had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby, a very uh, fine, glorious, uh, worthy, valuable stones. Uh, there was a rainbow that shone around him like an emerald uh, that encircled the throne. There were 24 other thrones, and seated there were 24 elders. Uh, there were dressed in white. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, there was a sea of glass, clear as crystal. There were these four living creatures. I want to, as we approach Revelation, I want us to be cautious. Uh, because people tend to try to find meaning in every stone, every color, every number, every symbol. Uh, sometimes... Uh, that's not what uh, Revelation is trying to do. Remember, it's beyond our senses to comprehend what's taking place there. And so uh, the John is giving to our brains, our minds, our senses, that which we can understand. Uh, some of these things are straightforward. I'll explain the simple ones that I get. Uh, some of them may be less so. He had the appearance of uh, the of the most valuable, indescribable uh, worth. I mean, how do you try to describe to somebody uh, Jasper or Ruby, except that it is beautiful? There was a rainbow around the throne, 
If you study the Bible at all, you'll know rainbow from uh, Genesis chapter 9. It was a sign uh, of a covenant that God would never destroy the earth uh, by flooding again. It, it was both a sign of God's judgments on the earth, but also of his grace and mercy. Uh, around the throne is God's grace and mercy and judgment. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. It seems that there are people there, humans there, uh, seated around the throne. They're dressed in white. They have crowns of gold on their head. It seems as though they're ruling with God around his throne. Uh, it's pretty safe to say that it's representative of the people of God, the 12 tribes of the Old Testament, the 12 apostles of the New Testament. But here certainly are the people of God whose sins have been forgiven, standing there worshiping God. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings. That's all reminiscence of Exodus chapter 19 and Mount Sinai and God's presence on the mountain or story uh, in Eli of Elijah back in 1 Kings 19, 17, 18, 19. Um, the, Psalm 18 talks about God and, in, and the storm. And, and so it's this representation of immense uh, power. There were seven blazing lampstands, and these are the seven spirits of God. Well, there's a meaning given right there. They're the spirits of God. That is the perfect, uh, complete, full spirit of God. There was a sea of glass, clear as crystal. We know from the Old Testament that the sea uh, represented chaos. Uh, but now here in heaven, the sea is uh, perfectly still, as clear and, and smooth as crystal. The four living creatures, the ox and the man and the lion and the eagle. Well, in, in ancient thought, they were, they were meant to represent all of creation. So all of creation is represented there. And so that's what you've got in the imagery. But then what lies beyond the imagery? Because the question isn't just who's there, but it's what is it that they are doing? The first thing that we see being done is that the four living creatures, that is, all of creation is uh, joyfully uh, worshiping and celebrating God for who he is. They are gratefully acknowledging reality. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That is the great heavenly reality, that real power, almighty power, lies with God, and he is holy, and he is permanent. There is the heart of what heaven is all about. That is the heart of all realities. Uh, that is what Revelation is revealing to you and to me. Uh, that, uh, and it's something that we wouldn't know if we didn't get a glimpse into heaven. It's something that we wouldn't be able to ascertain as a natural person looking around the world. It is a truth that is unknown unless it is made known. Because we wouldn't know that the real power in the universe belongs to God and God alone. That there is no other power that threatens God's power. Uh, that he is always there, that he was and is and is to come, and he exercises it in perfect holiness, in otherness, in set-apartness. You know, all of that is bound up in that he always acts in justice. He is always good, and he is never evil. Uh, he is perfectly righteous. 
Uh, we discover all of this by getting this glimpse into heaven. We wouldn't know it by looking at the world around us, but we can know it uh, because it has been made known to us. And the praise that is described is that of giving glory and honor and thanks to God. It's not just an acknowledgement of reality, uh, that that is just the way things are. Uh, these creatures are grateful that this is the way that things are. Uh, praise must always have this element of gratitude in it, that we are grateful uh, for God, for who he is, and that this is the way that things are. The second thing that we see happening in heaven is that the 24 elders, whenever the living creatures give glory to God, well then the 24 elders, uh, they fall down and worship the one who lives forever and ever. And what they do is they joyfully acknowledge God's worth. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. They're recognizing and acknowledging the worthiness of God because he created everything, it, everything exists by his will, and they have their being because everything has its being because he made it. So that's the, the second thing that we see happening and taking place in heaven. So let me try and bring this all together and wrap it up and bring it to a close. Revelation chapter 4 has a lot to say to us about worship. And so the first question that we need to ask is, do we gratefully acknowledge the reality of heaven and what is taking place there now? And do we joyfully acknowledge God's worth in our worship? You see, worship costs. It must cost us, or it isn't really worship. There's no such thing as praise without consequences. Did you see that when the 24 elders worship, they bow down and they put their crowns, uh, they laid them before the throne? Uh, Praising God is not just an emotional act or an ecstatic experience. Worship also means handing control of our lives over to the one who is seated on the throne. But we'll never be able to do that if we cannot acknowledge uh, God's holiness. We'll never be able to do that if we cannot acknowledge his permanence. We'll never be able to do that if we cannot acknowledge his worthiness that he is worthy of our praise, that he is worthy of our worship because he created all things, that he's worthy of your worship because he created you and because you only exist because of his will. So that's the first thing that we need to, to pick up. I think the second thing that we need to understand is that worship is always an act of submission. Uh, that worship should be an encouraging experience because it reminds us of who rules. Uh, that worship must always involve the amendment of our lives. It must always involve a change of life because the God that we worship is holy. I think the third thing that it makes us consider is, is the effect that what is taking place in heaven now, what effect is that having on our lives? How does it raise the bar of worship? Uh, how does it raise the bar uh, of uh, prayer? How does it raise the bar of all those things? Uh, what things need to be elevated in our lives? And what things need to be dethroned?
And I think the last thing that I want to say as we uh, bring this to a close is we can't read Revelation um, in, in, in pieces. We've got to read it in its entirety. So chapter 4 will inform later chapters, uh, but chapters 1 to 3 also inform chapter 4. And so we discover that back in chapter 3, uh, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. So there's some door imagery there. But in chapter 3, verse 21, we read, The one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. You see, here's the promise. There's a throne in heaven, and God is seated on it. And Jesus Christ is seated on it. We're going to learn more about Jesus in chapter 5 next week with the seal and the scrolls and the, the lamb and, and all of that. But for now, what we need to know is that to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is the heavenly reality. And you know, back in Colossians chapter 3, Paul said, Paul Apostle Paul also seems to have had some kind of a heavenly experience. He was taken up into the third heaven or the seventh heaven. Uh, and, and so he writes, and I just wonder if this wasn't what he was writing about. In Colossians 3, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. There is this encouragement uh, throughout the New Testament, and especially here in Revelation, as these realities of heaven are revealed, these realities that are beyond our senses or our ability to understand, uh, but we can understand them because they have been made known, they have been revealed, that we can set our mind on things above. So let me end where I began and ask you this question, how much time do you spend thinking about heaven? Not about going there, but about what is taking place there right now. And what effect is that reality having on your life? The church needs to be reminded of its heavenly connection and of its heavenly reality. And today, that's exactly what you have heard, your heavenly connection and your heavenly reality. Are you looking forward to reigning with Christ, seated on God's throne, reigning and ruling with him one day? And what effect is that having on the choices that you're making now? Would you bow with me and let's pray. Our Lord God and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to set our minds on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Help us, Lord, to elevate the things that perhaps we don't see as important or impressive in our life, but because of their heavenly reality and connection are incredibly important. And help us, Lord, to put things down that are perhaps um, clouding or fogging our vision so that we can't see heaven clearly. May heaven and the reality uh, of what is taking place there have a great effect on our lives now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.